Chapter 29 of The Spanish Brothers by Deborah Ockhock. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 29. A Friend at Court. I have a soul and body that exact a comfortable care in many ways. R. Browning. Don Juan's peril was extreme. Well known as he was to many of the imprisoned Lutherans, it seemed a desperate chance that, amongst the numerous confessions wrung from them, no mention of his name should occur. He knew himself deeply implicated in the crime for which they were suffering, the one unpardonable crime in the eyes of Rome. Moreover, unlike his brother, whose temperament would have led him to avoid danger by every lawful means, he was by nature brave even to rashness, and bold even to recklessness. It was his custom to wear his heart on his lips, and though of late stern necessity had taught him to conceal what he thought, it was neither his inclination nor his habit to disguise what he felt. Probably not even his desire to aid Carlos would have prevented him compromising himself by some rash word or deed, had not the soft hand of Doña Beatriz, strong in its weakness, held him back from destruction. Not for one instant could he forget her terrible vow. With this forever before his eyes, it is little marvel if he was willing to do anything, bear anything, ay, almost to feign anything, rather than involve her he loved in a fate inconceivably horrible. And, alas for the brave, honest-hearted, truthful Don Juan Alvarez, it was often necessary to feign. If he meant to remain in Seville, and to avoid the dungeons of the Inquisition, he must obviate or remove suspicion by protesting, both by word and action, his devotion to the Catholic Church and his hatred of heresy. Could he stoop to this? Gradually and more and more, as each day's emergency made it more and more necessary, he did stoop to it. He told himself it was all for his brother's sake. And though such a line of conduct was intensely repugnant to his character, it was not contrary to his principles. To conceal an opinion is one thing, to deny a friend quite another. And while Carlos had found a friend, Juan had only embraced an opinion. He himself would have said that he had found truth, had devoted himself to the cause of freedom. But where were truth and freedom now, with all the bright anticipations of their ultimate triumph, which he had been wont to indulge? As far as his native land was concerned— and it must be owned that his mental eyes scarcely reached beyond the Spains, a single day had blotted out his glowing visions forever. Almost at the same moment, and as if by some secret preconcerted signal, the leading Protestants in Seville, in Valladolid, all over the kingdom, had been arrested and thrown into prison. Swiftly, silently, with the utmost order and regularity, had the whole thing been accomplished. Every name that Juan had heard Carlos mention with admiration and sympathy was now the name of a helpless captive. The reformed Church of Spain existed no longer, or existed only in dungeons. In what quarter the storm had first arisen, that burst so suddenly upon the community of the faithful, Don Juan never knew. It is probable the Holy Office had long been silently watching its prey, waiting for the moment of action to arrive. In Seville, it is said, a spy had been set upon some of Losada's congregation, who revealed their meeting to the inquisitors. While in Valladolid, the foul treachery of the wife of one of the Protestants furnished the holy office with the means of bringing her husband and his friends to the stake. Don Juan, whose young heart had lately beat so high with hope, now bowed his head in despair, and despairing of freedom, he lost his confidence in the truth also. In opinion, he was still a decided Lutheran. He accepted every doctrine of the Reformed as against the Roman Catholic creed. But the hold he once had upon these doctrines as living realities was slackened. He did not doubt that justification by faith was a scriptural dogma, but he did not think it necessary to die for it. Compared with the tremendous interest of the fate of Carlos and the peril of Beatriz, 
and amidst his desperate struggles to aid the one and shield the other, doctrinal questions grew pale and faint to him. Nor had he yet learned to throw himself in utter weakness upon a strength greater than his own and a love that knows no limits. He did not feel his weakness. He felt strong. In the strength of a brave heart struggling against cruel wrong, strong to resist and, if it might be, to conquer his fate. At first he cherished a hope that his brother was not actually in the secret dungeons of the Inquisition, for so great was the number of the captives that the public jails of the city and the convent prisons were full of them, and some had to be lodged even in private houses. As Carlos had been one of the last arrested, there seemed reason to suppose that he might be amongst those thus accommodated, in which case it would be much easier both to communicate with him and to alleviate his fate than if he were within the gloomy walls of the Churiana. There might be, moreover, the possibility of forming some plan for his deliverance. But Juan's diligent and persevering search resulted at last in the conviction that his brother was in the Santa Casa itself. This conviction sent a chill to his heart. He shuddered to think of his present suffering, whilst he feared the worst for the future, supposing that the Inquisitors would take care to lodge in their own especial fortress those whom they esteemed the most anist transgressors. He engaged a lodging in the Triana suburb, which the river spanned by a bridge of boats separated from the city. There were several reasons for this choice of residence, but by far the greatest was that those who lingered beneath the walls of the grim old castle could sometimes see, behind its grated windows, spectral faces raised to catch the few scanty gleams of daylight which fell to their lot. Long, weary hours did Juan watch there, hoping to recognize the face he loved, but always in vain. When he went into the city, it was sometimes for other purposes than to visit Doña Beatriz. It was as often to seek the precincts of the magnificent cathedral, and to pace up and down that terrace, whose massive truncated pillars, raised when the Romans founded a heathen temple on the spot, had stood throughout the long ages of Muslim domination. Now the place was consecrated to Christian worship, and yet it was put to no hallowed use. Rich merchants, in many a varying garb, that told of different nations, trod the stately colonnade, and bought and sold and made bargains there. For in those days, strange as it seems to us the irreverence of the so-called ages of faith, that terrace was the royal exchange of Seville, then a mercantile city of great importance. Don Juan Alvarez diligently resorted thither, and held many a close and earnest conversation with a keen-eyed hawk-nosed Jew, whom he met there. Isaac Osorio, or more properly, Isaac Ben Osorio, was a notorious moneylender who had often obliged Don Manuel's son, not unfairly requiring heavy interest, to counterbalance the hazardous nature of his investments. Callings branded as unlawful are apt to prove particularly gainful. The Jew was willing to oblige Don Juan also upon certain conditions. He was not by any means ignorant of the purpose for which his money was needed. Of course, he was himself a Christian in name, for none other would have been permitted to live upon Spanish ground. But by what wrongs, tortures, agonies worse than death, he and those like him had been forced to accept Christian baptism, will never be known until Christ comes again to judge the false church that has slandered him. Will it be nothing in his sight that millions of the souls for whom he died have been driven to hate his name, that name so unutterably precious? Osorio derived grim satisfaction from the thought that the Christians were now imprisoning, torturing, burning each other. It reminded him of the grand old days in his people's history, when the Lord of Hosts was wont to stretch forth his mighty arm and trouble the armies of the aliens, turning every man's hand against his brother. Let the Gentiles bite and devour one another. The children of Abraham could look upon their quarrels with calm indifference. But if he had any sympathy, it was for the weaker side. He was rather disposed to help a Christian youth who was trying to save his brother from the same cruel fangs in which so many sons of Israel had writhed and struggled. 
Don Juan therefore found him accommodating and even lenient. From time to time he advanced him considerable sums, first upon the jewels he had brought with him from Nuera, and then, alas, upon his patrimony itself. Not without a keen pang did Juan thus mortgage the inheritance of his father's, but he began to realize the bitter truth that a flight from Spain and a new career in some foreign land would eventually be the only course open to him, if indeed he escaped with life. Nor would the armies of Spain henceforth be more free to him than her soil. Fortunately, the necessity for rejoining his regiment had not arisen, for the brief war in which he served was over now, and as the promised captaincy had not yet been assigned to him, he was at liberty for the present to remain at home. He largely bribed the head jailer of the inquisitorial prison, besides supplying him liberally with necessities and comforts for his brother's use. Caspar Benevidio bore the worst of characters, both for cruelty and avarice. Still, Juan had no resource but to trust implicitly to his honor, in the hope that at least some portion of what he gave would be allowed to reach the prisoner. But not a single gleam of information about him could be gained from Benevidio, who, like all other servants of the Inquisition, was bound by a solemn oath to reveal nothing that passed within its walls. He also bribed some of the attendants and satellites of the all-powerful inquisitor Munabraga. It was his desire to obtain a personal interview with the great man himself, that he might have the opportunity of trying the intercession of Don Dinero, to whose advances he was known to be not altogether obdurate. For the purpose of soliciting an audience, he repaired one evening to the splendid gardens belonging to the Triana to await the inquisitor, who was expected shortly to return from a sale for pleasure on the Guadalquivir. He was sick at heart of the gorgeous tropical plants that surrounded him, of the myrtle blossoms that were showered on his path, of all that told of the hateful pomp and luxury in which the persecutor lived, while his victims pined, unpitied in loathsome dungeons. Yet neither by word, look, nor sign dared he betray the rage that was gnawing his heart. At length the shouts of the populace, who thronged to the riverside, announced the approach of their idol, for such Munabraga was for the time. Clad in costly silks and jewels, and surrounded by a brilliant little court, composed both of churchmen and laymen, the Lord Inquisitor stepped from his splendid purple-decked barge. Don Juan threw himself in his way and modestly requested an audience. His bearing, though perfectly respectful, was certainly less obsequious than that to which Munabraga had been accustomed of late. So the minister of the Holy Office turned from him haughtily, though, as Juan bitterly thought, His father would have been proud to hold the stirrup for mine. This is no fitting time to talk of business, senor, he said. We are weary tonight and need repose. At that moment, a Franciscan friar advanced from the group, and with his lowest bow and most reverent manner approached the inquisitor. With the gracious permission of my very good lord, I shall address myself to the caballero and report his errand to your sanctity. I have the honor of some acquaintance with his excellency's noble family. As you please, frere, said the voice accustomed to speak the terrible words that doomed to the rack and the pulley, though no one would have suspected this from the bland, careless good nature of its tones. But see that you tarry not so as to lose your supper. Howbeit, there is little need to caution you, or any other son of St. Francis, against undue neglecting of the body. The son of St. Francis made no answer, either because it was not worth while, or because those who take the crumbs from the rich man's table must oft-times take his taunts therewith. He disengaged himself from the group, and turned towards Juan, a broad, good-humoured, not unintelligent face, which his former pupil recognized immediately. Fray Sebastian Gomez, he exclaimed in astonishment, and very much at the service of my noble Senor Don Juan. Will your excellency deign to bear me company for a little time? In yonder walk there are some rare flowers of rich coloring, which it were worth your while to observe. 
They turned into the path he indicated, while the Lord Inquisitor's silken train swept towards that half of the Triana where godless luxury bore sway, the other half being consecrated to the twin demon cruelty. Will it please your worship to look at these Indian pinks? said the friar. You will not see that flower elsewhere in all the Spains, save in the royal gardens. His imperial majesty brought it first from Tunis. Juan all but cursed the innocent flowers, but recollected in time that God made them, though they belonged to Gonzales de Munabraga. In heaven's name, what brings you here, Fray Sebastian? He interrupted impatiently. I thought to see only the black cows of St. Dominic about the, the minister of the holy office. A little more softly, may I implore of your excellency? Yonder casement is open, pues, senor. I am here in the capacity of a guest, nothing more. Every man to his taste, said Juan dryly, as with a heedless foot he kicked off the beautiful scarlet flower of a rare cactus. Have a care, senor and your excellency. My lord is very proud of his cactus flowers. Then come with me to some spot of God's free earth where we can talk together, out of sight of him and his possessions. Nay, rest content, senor and untire yourself in this fair arbor overlooking the river. At least God made the river, said Juan, flinging himself with a sigh of irritation and impatience on the cushioned seat of the summer-house. Fray Sebastian seated himself also. My lord, he began to explain, has received me with all courtesy, and is good enough to desire my continual attendance. The fact is, senor, his reverence is a man of literary taste. Juan allowed himself the solace of a quiet sneer. Oh, is he? Very creditable to him, no doubt. Especially he is a great lover of the divine art of poesy. No genuine love of the gentle art, whose great lesson is sympathy, did or could soften the Inquisitor's hard heart. Nor had his wealth been doubled could he have hired one real poet to sing his praise and strains worthy the ear of posterity. In an atmosphere so cold, the most ethereal spirit would have frozen but it was in his power to buy flattery and rhyme, and it suited his inclination so to do. He liked the trick of rhyme, at once so easy and so charming in the sonorous Castilian tongue. It was a pleasure of the ear which he keenly appreciated, as he did also those of the eyes and palate. I addressed to him, Fray Sebastian continued with becoming modesty, a little effort of my muse, really a mere trifle, on the suppression of heresy, comparing the Lord Inquisitor to Michael the Archangel with the dragon beneath his feet you understand senor juan understood so well that it was with difficulty he refrained from flinging the unlucky rhymester into the river but of late he had learned many a lesson in prudence still his words sounded almost fierce in their angry scorn i suppose he gave you in return a good dinner but fray sebastian would not take offence he answered mildly he was pleased to express his approval of my humble effort and to admit me into his noble household where except my poor exertions to amuse and untire him by my conversation may be accounted a service i am of no service to him whatever so you are clad in purple and fine linen and fare sumptuously every day said juan with contempt that he cared not to conceal as to purple and fine linen senor i am an unworthy son of saint francis and it is well known to your excellency that by the rules of our order not even one scrap of holland but you are laughing at me as you used in old times senor don juan god knows i have little heart to laugh 
In these old times you speak of, Frey, there was no great love between you and me, and no marvel, for I was a wild and idle lad. But I think you loved my gentle brother, Don Carlos. That I did, senor, as did everyone. Has any evil come upon him? St. Francis forbid! Worse evil than I care to name. He lies in yonder tower. The Blessed Virgin have pity on us! cried Fray Sebastian, crossing himself. I thought you would have heard of his arrest. Juan continued sadly. I, senor? Never a breath. Holy saints defend us! How could I or anyone dream that a young gentleman of noblest race, well-learned and of truly pious disposition, would have had the ill luck to fall under so foul a suspicion? Doubtless it is the work of some personal enemy. And, ah, uh, woe is me! The clattering horseshoe ever wants a nail. Here have I been naming heresy, talking of halters in the house of the hanged? Hold thy tongue about hanging said Juan testily. And listen to me if thou canst. Fray Sebastian indicated, by respectful gesture, his profound attention. It has been whispered to me that the door of his reverence heart may be unlocked by a golden key. Fray Sebastian asserted him this was foul slander, concluding a panegyric on the purity of the Inquisitor's administration with the words, You would forfeit his favor forever by presuming so far as to offer a bribe. No doubt, answered Juan with a sneer, and a hard, wordly look on his face that of late was often seen there. I should deserve to pay that penalty were I the fool to approach him with a bow, and said, Here is a purse of gold for your sanctity, but one take is worth two, I give yous, and there's a way of saying take to every man. And I ask you, for old kindness, to show me how to say it to his lordship. Fray Sebastian pondered. After an interval, he said with some hesitation, May I venture to inquire, senor? What means you possess of clearing the character of your noble brother? Juan only answered by a sorrowful shake of the head. Darker and darker grew the friar's sensual but good-natured face. His excellent reputation, his brilliant success at college, his blameless life should tell in his favor. Juan said at length. Have you nothing more direct? If not, I fear it is a bad business. But silence is called holy, so I hold my peace. Still, if indeed which the saints forbid, he has fallen inadvertently into error, it is a comfort to reflect that there will be little difficulty in reclaiming him. Juan made no reply. Did he expect his brother to retract? Did he wish him to do it? These were questions he scarcely dared to ask himself. From any reply he could give to them, he shrank in shuddering dread. He was ever gentle and tractable, Fray Sebastian continued, and oft-times but too easy to persuade. Juan rose, took up a stone, and threw it into the river. When the circles it made in the water had died away, he turned back to the friar. But what can I do for him? He asked, with an undertone of helpless sadness, touching from the lips of one so strong. Fray Sebastian put his hand to his forehead and looked as if he were composing another poem. Let me see, Your Excellency. There is my lord's nephew and pet page, Don Alonso. Where he has got the don, I know not but Don Dinero makes many a noble. I dare say it would not hurt the Donzello's soft white hand to finger a purse of gold ducats, and those same ducats might help your brother's cause not a little. Manage the matter for me, and I will thank you heartily. Gold, to any extent that will serve him, shall be forthcoming, and my good friend, see that you spare it not. Ah, Senor Don Juan, you were always generous. 
My brother's life is at stake, said Juan, softening a little. But the hard look returned as he added, Those who live in great men's houses have many expenses, Frey. Always remember that I am your friend, and that my ducats are very much at your service also. Frey Sebastian thanked him with his lowest bow. Juan's look changed again, this time more rapidly. If it were possible, he added in low, hurried tones, if you could only bring me the least word of tidings from him, even one word to say if he lives, if he is well, how is he entreated? Three months it is now since he was taken, and I have heard no more than if they had carried him to his grave. It is a difficult matter, a very difficult matter that you ask of me. Were I a saint of St. Dominic, I might indeed accomplish somewhat, for the black cowls are everything now. Still, I will do all I can, senor. I trust you, Frey. If under cover of seeking his conversion, of anything you could but see him. Impossible, senor, utterly impossible. Why? They sometimes send friars to reason with the prisoners. Always Dominicans or Jesuits, men well known and trusted by the board of the Inquisition. However, senor, nothing that a man may do shall be wanting on my part. Will not that content your excellency? Content me? Well, as far as you concerned, yes. But, in truth, I am haunted day and night by one horrible dread. What if... if they should torture him? My gentle brother, frail in mind and body, tender and sensitive as a woman, terror and pain would drive him mad. The last words were a quick broken whisper, but outward expressions of emotion with Don Juan were always speedily replaced. Recovering apparent calmness, he stretched out his hand to Fray Sebastian, saying with a faint smile, I have kept you too long from my lord's supper table. Pardon me. Your Excellency's condescension in conversing with me deserves my profound gratitude, replied the monk in true Castilian fashion. His residence at the Inquisitor's court had certainly improved his manners. Don Juan gave him his address, and it was agreed that he should call on him in a few days. Fray Sebastian then offered to bring him on his way through the garden and court of that part of the Triana which formed the Inquisitor's residence. But Juan declined the favor. He could not answer for himself when brought face to face with that impious pomp and luxury of the persecutor of the saints. He feared that, by some wild word or deed, he might imperil the cause he had at heart. So he hailed a waterman who was guiding his little boat down the tranquil stream in the waning light. The boat was soon brought to the place where the Inquisitor had landed from his barge, and one, after shaking the dust from his feet, both literally and metaphorically, sprang into it. The popular ideal of a persecutor is very far from the truth. At the word, there rises before most minds a vision of a lean, pale-faced, fierce-eyed monk, whose frame is worn with fasting and his scourge red with his own blood. He is a fanatic, pitiless, passionate, narrow-minded, perhaps half-insane, but penetrated to the very core of his being with intense zeal for his church's interests, and prepared in her service both to inflict and to endure all things. Very unlike this ideal were most of the great persecutors who carried out the behests of Antichrist. They were generally able men, but they were preeminently men wise in their generation, men of their generation, men who loved this present world. They gave the church the service of strong hand and skillful brain that she needed, and she gave them, in return, gold and silver and precious stones and pearls, and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet, and all sweet wood, and all manner of vessels of ivory, and all manner of vessels of most precious wood, and of brass and of iron and marble, and cinnamon and odors and ointment and frankincense, and wine and oil, and fine flour and wheat, and beasts and sheep, and horses and chariots, and slaves, and souls of men. 
It was for these things, not for abstract ideas, not for high places in heaven, that they tortured and murdered the saints of God. Whilst the cry of the oppressed reached the ears of the Most High, those who were wearing them out lived in unhallowed luxury, in degrading sensuality. Gonzalez de Munabraga was a good specimen of the class to which he belonged. He was no exceptional case. Nor was Fray Sebastian anything but an ordinary character. He was amiable, good-natured, free from gross vices, what is usually called well-disposed. But he loved wine and oil, and to obtain what he loved, he was willing to become the servant and flatterer of worse men than himself, at the terrible risk of sinking to their level. With all the force of his strong nature, Don Juan Alvarez loathed Munabraga and scorned Fray Sebastian. Gradually, a strange alteration appeared to come over the little book he constantly studied, his brother's Spanish testament. The words of promise and hope and comfort in which he used to delight seemed to be blotted from its pages, while ever more and more those pages were filled with fearful threatenings and denunciations of doom against hypocritical scribes and Pharisees, false teachers and wicked high priests, against great Babylon, the mother of abominations. The peace-breathing, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, grew fainter and more faint, until at last it faded completely from his memory, while there stood out before him night and day, in characters of fire, Serpents, generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? End of chapter 29